You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of the opening plenary address, which was given by Professor Mary O'Dowd from Queen's University, Belfast. Her paper was entitled, Age as a Category of Analysis, an Agenda for Early Modern Ireland. Professor O'Dowd was introduced by Professor Marion Lyons from Maynooth University. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'd like to uh, begin by thanking Brona and the conference organisers for the invitation to chair uh, this plenary session. My name is Marion Lyons, I'm from uh, Maynooth University, and it is a particular pleasure to chair this session. Uh, as, like you, I'm very much looking forward to hearing our speaker, Professor Mary O'Dowd's reflections on age as a category uh, of analysis. Now, given the exceptional wealth of Mary's scholarship uh, on the history of women, children, marriage, uh, and the family in early modern Ireland, uh, together with her uh, extensive uh, experience of teaching what looked like really fascinating courses uh, at Queen's University in the area, uh, I think she is particularly well positioned uh, to set us thinking about this subject of age uh, as a category uh, for analysis in history. Uh, I would draw your attention to the fact that the last time that Mary uh, produced an agenda, namely an agenda for women's history uh, in Ireland, which was published in Irish Historical Studies in 1992, she inspired a whole generation of scholars to take up the study of the history of women and of the family in modern Ireland uh, and really lent a very important impetus to uh, the blossoming of the study of Irish social uh, history. And I think the really excellent session that we've come from just this afternoon, uh, three superb papers on early modern women in Ireland, uh, is in no small part, I think, the result of something that Mary started in that that agenda. And so today we look forward very much uh, to hearing her thoughts on age as a potential category of analysis for early modern Ireland. So, Mary... Thank you very much, um, and also thank you to uh, to Brona McShane for for asking me to uh, to talk to you today. Um, and the introduction was uh, very appropriate because it literally is all I'm really trying to do is to get you thinking about it. It's um, very much part of what I'm going to present is very much part of. Um, ongoing research, and uh, it's still very much work in progress. Um, But I did think it was worth um, presenting to a group of experts um, where I've got so far. Um, And I suppose I should also say I'm uh, sort of on the scrounge for um, uh, suggestions for possible sources that include reference to age or give a, a, ideally give a detailed breakdown of people's ages, which is something that uh, may be impossible. Um, but if anybody has any ideas, I'd be very grateful. And I'm also, um, as you shall see, really looking for ideas about um, how to uh, approach the topic um, because I'm still really working um, out uh, ideas about it myself, and that's really why I did put the, um, or ask Brona to put the question mark at the uh, at the end of the title, um, because I'm not even absolutely sure there is an agenda, but um, um, I thought it was worth trying it out anyway. Okay, so I've already, um, as Marianne alluded to, I've already um, uh, done some work that I've published on children and youth in early modern 
Ireland. Um, and so what I want to do today is really to move to the other end of the age scale um, and look primarily at older people um, and the aged. Um, there have been a number of studies, some of you may be familiar with them, on um, uh, age and old age in early modern England, um, and it is one of the benefits of teaching that Marion uh, referred to, that uh, I did have to read a lot of this material for teaching purposes, so on, on early modern England. So what I'm proposing to do really is to look at some of the ideas that historians have come up with about age and old age uh, in 16th and 17th century England and to see if we can identify similar or different trends in Ireland or to see how many of the idea, uh, these ideas, if any, uh, also apply to the history of old age in Ireland. So I want to start really by just pointing to some of the main conclusions of historians on old age in early modern England. Keith Thomas um, was one of the first to write on the topic in a lecture that he gave to the British Academy in 1976 entitled Age and Authority in Early Modern England. Um, and in this article, Thomas argued that 16th and 17th century English society was almost a gerontocracy, that the prevailing ideal, as he said, was gerontocratic and the young were to serve and the old were to rule. Religious and political commentators urged the young to obey their elders and long years of apprenticeship kept the youth in England um, under the control of their elders until well into their 20s. Keith Thomas also looked at the key office holders in Tudor and Stuart uh, England and pointed out that all of the office holders, the Lord Chancellor, Privy Councillors, judges, were um, held by men in their late, all those positions were held by men in their late 40s and 50s. And many of these office holders hold on to their positions until they either died or were deemed too old or too ill to uh, uh, fulfil their duties in public service. A classic example of that being William Cecil, Lord Burley, who served, as you all probably know, as one of Queen Elizabeth's advisors for most of her reign, and he was in his 70s before he eventually withdrew from public office shortly, uh, just a few years before he died. So that's what, one question I want to ask is, can we detect similar trends in early modern Ireland with middle-aged and older men control the main political offices. And does this translate into wider public and cultural respect for the authority of the old? Following on from Keith Thomas's pioneering work in the 1970s, other historians have written more recently about old age in uh, 16th and 17th century England, including Lynn Bottolo, and Path Thane, and they focused mainly on the care of the elderly and on public and private attitudes to older people. And one of their main conclusions, which doesn't really contradict uh, Thomas's uh, ideas, is that there is considerable continuity in attitudes to the elderly uh, in the early modern period. Um, and that is a view that doesn't focus necessarily or doesn't identify, particularly in terms of public policy, the old as a group that needs to be distinctly uh, separated from other groups in society. For example, um, the elderly poor are not uh, distinguished from the poor in general. So policies that apply to the poor also apply to the elderly poor, without them being considered a special group within that uh, wider group of the poor. And they would argue that it's not until the 18th century that public discourse 
begins to focus on the elderly as a distinct group in society. So I want again to see how that applies in Ireland and what provision uh, was made for the care of the elderly during this time um, and if it, at all, if it changed um, um, at all during this period. So I want to start with some rough statistics which might give you some idea of the parameters of age in 17th century Ireland. And in the absence of census records or detailed birth and uh, death records, I've turned to other sources which do include information on age, the transplantation certificates of the 1650s and the depositions are the deponents who made depositions in the 1640s. And first, if we look at the um, transplantation certificates, this is just a breakdown. I've only so far looked, I should say, at the printed uh, certificates, all of the ones I could find. Um, um, and haven't yet looked at the manuscript ones, so um, it probably won't change. It's a relative uh, breakdown here. Um, so I know there are all sorts of equivocations people can make about these uh, figures, um, about who's missing um, or who's there. Uh, you know, is the one group more dominant than, than the others? There's also the fact, the very real fact, that most people probably did not know their real age during this uh, period. And so there's a great deal of rounding up or rounding down of uh, ages. So we have far more 40-year-olds than 42-year-olds um, or 43-year-olds or 45-year-olds. So people rounded up or rounded down or whoever was uh, estimating these age figures just uh, looked at the person and I'll come back to that point later on and, and estimated or guessed what age they were. But the figures might give us some idea of the relative distribution of age uh, within this sample of about 320 people altogether. 9% in this sample uh, are over the age of 60. And this does compare very well with the recent estimates in 16th century England, which suggests a figure of between 8 and 10% for people over uh, 60. The figure for 40 to 49-year-olds looks, to me, uh, a little low. Um, but if we move on to the, um, the age of the deponents, uh, in the first tranche of the, uh, the depositions in, in the 1640s, this is how the age of the deponents, which is usually uh, given, uh, breaks down. Um, so as you can see in that um, distribution, there is, uh, there is a, a more even spread between these main bounds, if you like, of adulthood, between the 30-year-olds and maybe the, the early 50s. And it, it is from this group in particular that um, Keith Thomas argues that many of the, uh, the main office holders in England came from. Um, so it's people, perhaps, as you can see, maybe at the the peak of, of life, so to speak, before they begin to go downhill into the smaller numbers and possibly have died by the, before they reach the age of uh, 60, because it is a small percentage of people um, who make it into that uh, uh, later uh, year group. In this uh, sample, about 12 to 13 percent of the people um, are estimated to be over 60. So it's slightly higher than in the um, transplantation uh, figures. But I'm not so much interested in the actual percentages because there's so many, um, um, as I say, equivocations you can make about these figures. What I am interested in more is the, is the relative um, distribution of the ages um, and that adulthood um, is over probably in your 50s um, for many people. So if we go back to office holding in, uh, in Ireland in the same period, um, uh, as, sorry, the same period that Thomas looked at 
for, uh, for England. One of the interesting things is, I think, is that the principal office soldiers in 16th century Ireland were relatively young by comparison with their English uh, counterparts. Oh, sorry, I forgot about this one. This is just the two, uh, the two figures uh, put together. And again, it's just to see the distribution, um, but they're more or less the same in both, uh, in both groups. Um, obviously, you, you can look at these figures and discuss the differences between them for different reasons. But um, as I say, I think the relative distribution uh, is worth having a look at. Okay, so if we look, move on to look at the, the average age of chief governor, for example, the Lord Deputy in the 16th century, um, nearly all of them were very young. The majority were under 45, and only two were over 50. Uh, so William Skeffington, who was 62 when he was appointed, and John Parrott, who was uh, 57. And if we omit those two figures as being... Uh, exceptional, um, the average age of the others was 33. So it's considerably younger than uh, uh, the holders of many of the chief administrative posts in England at the same time. Thomas Radcliffe, um, the Earl of Sussex, was, for example, 30 when he was appointed chief governor. Sidney was 36. William Fitzwilliam was older um, as Lord Deputy at 45, in 1571, but he was 27 when he was when he first served as an Irish Privy Councillor, which was considerably younger than the average age of 51 for Privy Councillors that um, Keith Thomas identified for the English Privy Council. It goes up a little bit, as you can see, the average age it does go up a little bit in the 17th century, but it goes up considerably, as you can see during the Restoration period after 1660, when the average age is 55. And many of the men appointed during that period were um, in their 60s. So they're considerably older than the younger generation of the 16th century. The Duke of Ormond um, was 33, as many of you may know, when he was first appointed Lord Deputy in the uh, 1640s. And this appointment is often described in his biographies as being unusually young. Um, and people often, even in the DMB entry, it just says he was 33, as if it was worth remarking. But in fact, um, uh, in terms of the 16th century anyway, um, that wasn't that unusual. What was more unusual about Ormond was in fact um, that his final reappointment as Lord Lieutenant in 1677 was when he was aged 67. Um, and he held that position for seven years, so that he was 74 uh, when he gave it up. And that made him, in fact, the oldest office holder of the office in the 300 years from 1500 to 1800. So the Restoration period might be seen in some ways, as heading towards the gerontocracy that Keith Thomas identified for early modern England. But as you can see, in the 18th century, it goes down uh, to 45, the average at least. So it's possible, too, that the Restoration was just a, a temporary uh, exception, because after the disruption of the 1640s and 1650s, there may have been a preference for the experience and loyalty of older men like Ormond um, uh, rather than younger and less experienced um, and possibly less to be trusted men. Clearly there are reasons for this discrepancy between England and Ireland. The military requirements of the position of Lord Deputy or Lord Lieutenant in the 16th century uh, in particular uh, partly explains the selection of relatively young men for the post. At 62, William Skeffington was the oldest serving Lord Deputy of the 16th century, and his contemporaries, as indicated in his Oxford Dictionary of National Biography entry by uh, Marion, um, actually um, attributed his failure to the curb, sorry, attributed his failure to curb the rebellion of the Earl of Kildare in 1535 to his advanced age, as it was called, 
um, and also to what were described as age-related illnesses. So office holding in the Dublin administration is dominated by relatively young men. So too, at the same time, were chieftainships in Gaelic Ireland. In the military world of Gaelic lordship, the corporeal strength of youth prevailed over the perceived weakness of old age. Chieftains who had ruled for a long time might be pressurised into yielding control to a younger man. Manus O'Donnell was about 60 years of age when in 1555 uh, his position of Lord of Tyrconnell was usurped by his son who imprisoned his father until his death in 1563. And Thurlach Linnick O'Neill was about the same age when he was forced in 1593 to give way uh, as Lord of Tyrone to the younger Hugh O'Neill. Owen Rowe O'Neill, who was in his 60s when he returned to Ireland in the 1640s, was clearly at the end of his military career at the time. And uh, this was probably, as many people have noted, a factor in his decision to return to Ireland to try, perhaps, to demonstrate that he still had the strength at that age uh, to lead uh, a military command. So, relatively young men, by comparison to England, dominated some of the senior positions uh, of authority in Ireland. Culturally, too, priority seems to have been given to the youth. Bardic poetry, for example, extols the strength of young male leaders and not the experience or wisdom of old age. Some sectors of the Irish administration did employ older men. Um, In the middle decades of the 16th century, for example, the Irish judges were among the oldest uh, of the officials serving in the Dublin government. Most were members of the old English community, and many of them held on to their position for life, often serving into their 60s and 70s. And Henry Sidney wrote a very memorable account of these men in 1567. The chief baron, he said, who was James Bath, at the time was aged 60, was both sick and impotent and forced to be absent from that court. The chief justice, who was John Plunkett, aged uh, 68, was an old man and evil able with diligence to attend that place. Um, And the Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, Robert Dillon, who was aged 70, a man much spent in years and decayed, both in sense and body. This generation of Irish judges was subsequently replaced by younger uh, and often English men coming straight over from uh, the Inns of Court uh, to Ireland. They were, those Englishmen were on the average also younger than their English counterparts, and many did go on subsequently in their later years to serve on the English bench. Um, And that's another reason, obviously, why sometimes Irish officials are younger, is that they're using Ireland as a a stepping stone to a career uh, uh, in their later years in, in England. Sydney's account of the 16th century judges, however, does raise an important point about um, office holding and age. And that is that there's no official retirement age. Historians of old age in other societies have distinguished between what they call chronological age and functional age. So that in a society without an official retirement age, a person's physical and mental ability to function may be more important than their chronological age, particularly um, when many people didn't even know their real age. In other words, that you were considered old when you could no longer do your job. Or uh, another argument is you you were considered old when you looked old um, and looked physically um, uh, decayed, both in sense and body. Signs of physical and mental deterioration were considered a more significant indication of age than the chronological figure. As Sidney's description suggests, it is when you could no longer fulfil your duties 
that you began to be considered or perceived as old. And the words that he uses to describe the judges, impotent, unable to attend that place, uh, decayed both in sense and body, are very typical of the way in which people wrote about old age, and particularly of uh, men and women who had reached that stage in life when they could no longer work or care for themselves. In the records of the Irish towns, for example, you'll find many references to town officials trying to uh, replace officials who were deemed aged and impotent. Um, Again, it's that word, um, and and it's a reference to the fact that they could no longer fulfil their positions. Some office holders undoubtedly try to hold on to their positions um, as long as they could, asserting strongly in some cases that they were clearly fit enough to carry out their duties. Um, in 1598, uh, Ralph Lane, the soldier and former governor of Virginia, um, when he was in his late 50s, we don't know exactly when he was born, but I, I think it was roughly when he was in his late 50s or early 60s, when, as a military person, he might have been asked to, to move aside. He wrote to the uh, Queen, really asserting that he was still a fit man and well able to uh, carry out his uh, duties. Um, Because he said he wanted to spend the small remainder of his aged life in Her Majesty's service, finding myself both in mind most willing and in body as able, the favour of the Almighty, to perform the same as in any time I have been within 20 years of my younger life. Um, And a document that might well reflect the sentiments of someone today forced into retirement at 65 when they might think that they're physically still able and fit to work as they were 20 years before. The same principle of prioritising functionality uh, over chronology can also be seen in public efforts to care for the poor, Uh, which brings me to the second question addressed by historians of the aged Um, in early modern England. Who cares for the poor um, when they begin to be uh, senseless um, um, or unable to work? And can we uh, detect any changes in the nature of that care or in the nature of public policy about caring for the elderly? And looking at the different provisions made for the elderly, what is striking is that many of the structures that are in place today for senior care also existed in early modern Ireland. The difference, of course, being that most formal systems of care uh, were then only available to a very small group um, in society. So we do have pensions um, being given to people, uh, mainly to men, but not exclusively, given by both Crown and town corporations for long-serving officials. Um, And the granting of the pension could be a means of easing somebody out of uh, office who could no longer do their job. In 1588, for example, Corbett Daly, the master gunner in uh, Dublin, who was, quote, grown through age to that weakness of body that he could not execute his office, um, was given a pension of... Uh, three pounds on the understanding that he would remove himself from his uh, post. In other towns, uh, men who would serve the town as aldermen or women who were related uh, to them were also given quite generous um, annual pensions. In early 17th century Yall, for example, uh, older men and women who fulfil these sort of criteria are given annual allowances of between two and four pounds. And in most cases, the corporation book notes that the person had become poor through old age and by implication was so old and infirm that they could no longer uh, uh, help themselves through work out of their poverty. Pensions were, of course, only for the well-connected. And so further down social hierarchy, we do have institutional care, 
some institutional care for the um, what we call the deserving poor. And this was also available to a small number of old men and women. In medieval Ireland, institutional care was provided by monasteries, Gaelic chiefs who volunteered or were forced into retirement, often spent their remaining days in a local monastery. And in the late 17th century, some convents began to revive this old tradition in uh, the Poor Clare's convent in uh, Channel Row in Dublin. Um, uh, in the late 17th century, they did provide residential care for elderly, wealthy women, presumably in return for um, generous donations. But most of the institutional care was for the poor and for very small numbers of the poor. And it came through the establishment of almshouses or poor houses, which appear in Irish towns in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Most cater for very small numbers, six to a dozen people at most. And were often, again, for this group called the deserving poor. So they're not targeted specifically at the elderly poor. Um, priority was often given to poor widows, not necessarily elderly widows, um, and they could be given a place at the expense of an older man or woman. Most of these institutions were so small that they were also always oversubscribed with uh, waiting lists for places. Again, not an unfamiliar uh, situation uh, from our perspective today. Um, the She Arms House, of which this photograph here um, is the modern version, modern building of it, now the tourist office in Kilkenny, it was established in 1582 for six unmarried men and six widows. And the men had to be either over 30 and physically disabled or if they were over 50, which was the cut-off date from a, an age point of view in this case, they had to demonstrate that they were unable to work due to age. Almshouses, therefore, are um, uh, evidence of uh, new forms of institutional care for the poor. Their small size, however, meant clearly that they're not available for very many people, and in some cases probably had a uh, religious um, entry qualification. So in the absence of other forms of care, we can assume that most older people looked to their families for assistance. Unfortunately, however, we have very little direct evidence of how families in 16th and 17th century Ireland provided for older relatives. The English author John Dunton described the making of bread uh, in a rural household in the west of Ireland in the late 17th century. The Bannon Thee, or the, the main woman of the house, uh, made the bread and then handed it over to an older woman who sat by the fire and she held the bread by the fire to bake it. And that image of an old person sitting by the hearth um, may be what one might imagine uh, in most other rural and probably also urban households of how old people were cared for in their own family homes. But we have very few examples uh, to prove that this was actually the case. And many of the descriptions of um, houses or families just don't refer to older people at all, at all. One source that we can look at are wills, um, which often include instructions on how a man, sorry, on how a man would like his wife to be treated by his heir after his death. And men often directed their sons to look after their mothers to provide food and lodging for them, sometimes indicating even which rooms in the house uh, should be allocated to the widow. In 1682, for example, Robert Carey of White Castle, County Down, instructed that his widow should have an annual allowance of £30. She should also have what he called the best chamber in the house for herself 
and his eldest son was also to provide food for his mother and food for her maid. But if these were the ideal arrangements for looking after widows through the remainder of their lives, court records suggest that not all sons were happy to follow the instructions of their fathers. The surviving Chancery Court records heard pleadings from widows complaining of how widows um, uh, had been uh, disregarded by their sons and had been treated, as they said, unnaturally um, by, uh, by their sons who had disregarded their father's instructions and refused to provide maintenance for the widow. Some women described how their sons had evicted them from their homes on the death of their husband. In the 1630s, older men and women also petitioned Thomas Wentworth for help to compel their families to provide for them. And then, as later in Irish rural society, control of family land could be a source of contention between the generations. In 1638, for example, William Owen Byrne from Ratnew in County Wicklow was over 80 years of age and described himself as a poor yeoman. He described how his sons had refused to give him any relief and so, as he said, wanting means to maintain life in himself, he had rented out half of his property to outsiders. His sons had objected to this and so Byrne appealed to Wentworth to give him help to resist the objections of his sons. Byrne's argument being that he was still the main tenant on the property and therefore he could do with it what he wished. In medieval and early modern England, there was a great deal of popular literature around the theme of distrust between older and younger members of the family. The old were urged not to hand over all their wealth to their children because this act of generosity might not be reciprocated through care for the elderly parents, as these people I've been talking about found out. And there was a a danger that old people could be left destitute. I've not found evidence of this theme in Irish literature, but this doesn't mean that this tension didn't exist. The reluctance of the old farmer to hand over control of his farm to his eldest son has been much documented in 19th century Ireland, and it had its origins, obviously, in the distrust of the older generation for the younger. And presumably this trust also existed in early modern England. In late medieval England, historians have documented legal agreements that older men in particular made with younger men and women. In exchange for the older man handing over some property um, and sometimes his house to the younger people, often a married couple, the young people undertook to provide the man and sometimes his wife with food and lodging for the rest of his life. And in the petitions presented to Wentworth in the 1630s, again, we can find small number of examples of what seemed to be similar agreements. In 1638, for example, Paul Leslie from Kilmadden in County Dublin explained to the court of Castle Chamber that he had made an agreement with his son, Donnock, that he could come to live on his father's property in return for maintaining him, as he said, in his old age, in sufficient meat and drink and lodging during his life. The problems arose, Leslie later alleged, when his son leased out some of the land without consulting him. And again, the tension was over who was in charge of the property. Was it the younger generation who are working it, presumably, um, and are the older generation of the man who possibly was at this stage sitting by the fire? On the Shirley estate in Monaghan in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, there are examples of similar agreements, usually between a parent and a son or daughter about to be married, with the older person agreeing to hand over some of the family land to the newly married couple in return for either retaining a small 
portion for themselves or for board and lodging. And such arrangements may reflect a longer tradition or custom of providing for the elderly. And I, I am on the lookout for other arrangements of this kind, if anybody knows of any. These type of arrangements, albeit relatively rare, do also suggest more agency on the part of the older members of the family than the image of the old woman passively sitting by the fire, turning the bread. Um, and, and this is why I'm also interested in um, how old people uh, sorry, I should have said family, begin to look after themselves and make individual provision for themselves and don't just rely um, are in the expectation or rely on the positive hope that their family will go after them. So looking at the different ways in which the elderly were cared for in 16th and 17th century Ireland, it doesn't seem that different from the English model. There are piecemeal efforts to help the deserving poor in general, um, but there isn't any awareness in England or in, our, in, sorry, in Ireland as there is in, in England, as there is in, also not in England. Uh, there's no strong awareness of the elderly as a separate group in society who require special attention. That does seem to be something that comes later. There is, however, one important connection that I want to finish with, or one important exception to this, which hasn't really been documented by historians in early modern England and may, for obvious reasons, have more of a direct relevance in Ireland than in England. And that is provision for old or aged soldiers. Because if you search for the words old, aged, impotent, all of these words that are associated with the old, on the online version of the Irish state papers, the vast majority of the references that yeah, you will find or relate to old and impotent or old and aged uh, soldiers who are no longer physically fit to serve in the army. And very often they're petitioning the crown for some means of livelihood. Some soldiers who serve in Ireland were, as you undoubtedly know, rewarded with grants of land at a relatively young age. But many, particularly in the lower ranks of the army, were not. And they were often disbanded with no more than a month or two months' pay. In 1576, for example, Sydney wrote of the problem of the many aged and disbanded soldiers in Ireland at that time, who, he said, were many in number and very needy and poor. The soldiers had got together as a group to send an agent to London to petition on their behalf um, and to try and get uh, uh, some relief. So officials are aware of this problem in the 16th century, but they don't come up with any coordinated plan uh, to deal with it. In the 17th century, the problem of old soldiers becomes uh, more intense, um, and there are plans in the aftermath of the 1590s in the Ulster Plantation to try and use some of the land, or rent from some of the land, to build um, uh, a large house uh, in which to lodge old uh, soldiers. Um, but this plan comes um, to, uh, to nothing. Um, yes, and then in the, in the um, early 17th century, there's also evidence that, it's about, that it is on the minds of senior officials in the Dublin administration. Richard Boyle, when he establishes his almshouses in Yall and Bandonbridge, in the early 17th century. He does so, does so specifically for old soldiers. And the commissioners of 1622 also spend a great deal of time trying to figure out how many old servitors um, who had served in the wars in the 1590s had uh, pensions um, and what were they costing the, uh, the state at the time. In the aftermath of the wars of the 1640s and 1650s, the problem arises again, as large numbers of uh, soldiers in the lower ranks were disbanded. And these included old soldiers who were no longer physically able to fight. And without any long-term means to maintain themselves, many of these soldiers, not surprisingly, returned home to their uh, uh, local areas in England 
where they became a very unwelcome burden on the local welfare system. So Irish army officials were instructed to prohibit disbanded elderly soldiers from returning to England. So the only practical solution was to keep them in the army, even though most of them were not fit for service. And by 1680, it was estimated that there were upwards of 400 old and unserviceable soldiers in the army. So it was an awareness of this issue that led to the most imaginative government-sponsored initiative uh, for the elderly of the period, the establishment of the Royal Hospital in uh, Kilmainham, um, um, which is this splendid-looking building here. And as even Charles recognised, that there are many soldiers in our army in Ireland who have grown aged or otherwise unserviceable, that is, they were injured or maimed, um, and yet continue in our pay for want of some fitting provision uh, for their livelihood and maintenance. And so they come up with this idea that they will build this very large building, partly in imitation of a similar building uh, in Paris, um, but the hospital in Paris was for injured, or mainly for injured soldiers, whereas this was to take old as well as injured soldiers. And what we get in this later period is really the first, I think, public statement that there is a moral obligation on the part of the state to at least um, look after one particular section of the elderly. This is the Earl of Essex notes. It's contrary both to justice and common reason to desert a man when he has served 10 or 20 years and turn him out to, uh, to starve. And this is the first sort of statement um, from a senior official that I've come across that explicitly um, acknowledges that the state has a, an obligation to these older men. The hospital, which was built in the early 1680s, was and still is a very impressive building. It provided lodgings for 476 soldiers who were deemed unfit to serve, either because of their age or because of injuries. And in addition, the hospital management looked after um, what were called out-pensioners, men who were given a weekly maintenance from the hospital, though they didn't actually live within its uh, grounds. It's not clear how many men were, were given this allowance in the beginning, but by 1726, the number was 570. So this is a very large-scale enterprise, and the numbers are impressive and far larger than the six to a dozen pensioners who are maintained in an almshouse. The men in the hospital are also very well looked after, provided with free food and lodgings, and nurses employed to make their beds, light a daily fire in each room, supply them on a daily basis with clean water, towels and linen. They're also given a two pence allowance for a week for tobacco and annually a new outfit of clothes. They could have visitors during the day, but a 1683 rule that no women could be entertained at night suggests that some may also have been looking for other forms of comfort uh, not provided by the institution. And in the 1720s, the uh, authorities are still trying to remove the idle and loose women who frequent or lie in the hospital. But in terms of numbers and the sheer size of the building, the Royal Hospital does represent by far the most significant government-sponsored scheme to provide for the elderly. It does represent um, an acknowledgement of the old as a group and the first major institution uh, to deal with it. Um, I'm not yet sure if it generated a wider debate um, or if its uh, presence generated a wider, wider debate in the early 18th century on care of the elderly um, uh, in 18th century Ireland, and that's still on my agenda for future research. So, in conclusion, if we go back to Keith Thomas's um, idea of linking age with authority, I don't think uh, um, that, that, is, that this is a particularly useful um, concept for examining old age in 16th and 17th century Ireland, um, because political leaders tended to be younger. 
And culturally, bardic poetry, unlike literature in England, as far as I can see, uh, praised the vigour of youth rather than the wisdom of age. Popular folk literature in Ireland mocked the old men who married um, younger women. Um, and that's the only references that I've been able to find to uh, the elderly in Gaelic literature of the time. And I'd be interested if anybody can suggest otherwise. One of the few pieces of Irish literature that does uh, celebrate an older person is, of course, The Old Woman of Bear, the poem. Um, and the folklore that surrounds that uh, woman and traditions that associated her with um, wise women and pre-Christian goddesses. But as far as I can judge from this literature, it's her magical powers rather than her age, which is admired and celebrated. As far as the care of the elderly is concerned, it is very similar to, to, uh, to that in England. Um, but the, the, the building of this establishment of the Royal Hospital of Kilmainham does, I think, um, um, merit acknowledgement as a change in policy, which English historians don't seem to have been uh, struck by when they're looking at care of the elderly. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's just because it's considered a topic for military historians or whether it's something that uh, old soldiers just simply aren't on the radar uh, in the same way in public discourse um, as they are in Ireland. So English literature, in other words, or the secondary literature on old age in early modern England, has really only a limited value for the history of old age in Ireland. And so I think we will have to develop a new agenda. But obviously, clearly, I'm not yet at the stage where I can say what's on that agenda. Um, and uh, it may, I think, probably will involve a, a wider time span that goes beyond the building of this uh, establishment. Um, but that's um, on the agenda for another day. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.